This is Interleaved, where we take a deep dive into topics from the Dafyomi with modern-day sages of the Torah and the world. I'm Natan Zelos Palay. On today's episode, an ancient art and a modern interpretation. Sometimes just a small change in a thread can definitely alter the ultimate look of a piece, and maybe nobody else would notice it, but I would. Among the 39 milachot, the 39 activities forbidden on Shabbat, are four that are unfamiliar to most modern Talmud learners. The Melachot of Mesech, Oseshte Batenirin, Oreg, and Potsea are all associated with the creative process of weaving, more specifically, weaving on a loom. Yet few of us, myself included, have ever actually seen a loom, let alone know how it works. Joining us to thread this complex craft together for us and to tell us about her own uniquely woven art is Anita Rabinoff Goldman. Anita is a textile artist who specializes in quilt based in Boston, Massachusetts. A graduate of the University at Albany with a degree in art and art history, she is the past owner of Pomegranate Judaica, a fiber arts business selling her handmade talitot, Torah mantles, and other ritual items, as well as Jewish themed art. Her quilt work, including her popular exhibit, Seeing Torah, has appeared in numerous local and national shows. Anita, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Many people are in the business of fabric making, whether as an occupation or a hobby, and many more inhabit the world of art. What brought you to the unique intersection that is your art? Well, I always sewed from the time I was a kid. I was always sewing or doing some sort of needlework that I was taught by my grandmother and my mother. I was either knitting or doing needlepoint or sewing clothing. And when I went to college, I started actually as a psychology and math major, but quickly realized that wasn't where my heart was. So I switched to studying art. And um, at the same time, I was home uh, on a break and there was a very seminal exhibit at the Whitney Museum in Manhattan, uh, viewing quilts as, anti-quilts as modern art. And as soon as I saw that, I knew that that was something I wanted to pursue. I went back to school and I did, you know, my course of study and I did do some textile work, but it wasn't until um, a few years later when I was married and settling into my new home, I decided to take a quilting class with a local woman. And uh, once I started quilting, that was pretty much all I wanted to do. I just, I loved the medium. I loved the tactile nature of the art form, as opposed to some other things that I had done in school. And after I did some more traditional work, I realized it could also be a creative medium and started venturing off into more non-traditional forms of the the medium. So that was really how I got started. Wow, really fascinating story. What would you say kind of separates the experience of quilting from other kinds of fabric making? Well, for example, weaving, as we talked about in the Talmud, is you're actually creating the cloth, whereas uh, in quilting, you're working with existent cloth. And nowadays, we take whole cloth and cut it up to create new either patchworks or applique images. Those are the two main forms of construction. So we're not actually creating cloth the way a weaver would, but we are using the cloth that exists to manipulate it into something else. So would you say as much as it is a creative art, 
it's also an endeavor of searching and scavenging for the right material. For me and the way I work, I consider the fabric my paint mm -hmm. and I consider the way I construct a quilt to be a form of painting, but I'm just painting with fabrics as opposed to paints and brushes. That's not necessarily true for every quilter, but there are also weavers who weave in a more representational way and in the process of their weaving create imagery and not just gridded cloth, for example. And that same holds true for other needle arts, knitting, crochet, many people have taken it far beyond the utilitarian aspects of creating cloth to make clothing, blankets, whatever, and have turned it into a creative endeavor. So needle arts have, are a creative force form as well as utilitarian. Oh, I love that analogy that you used about fabric being your paint. Wow, and, and I'm sure your material really contributes to the character of your pieces. Yeah, sometimes I dye my own fabric. I, I have culled out a lot of things and got rid of fabric. I appreciate fabric from all around the world because every culture and every fabric patterning and construction is so different all over the place. Yeah, I appreciate all those things. Beautiful. Before we dive into the Talmud and its depiction of weaving, can you take us through your creation process? In general, when I start a new piece, it's to solve a problem or answer a question. I try not to plan out my pieces too much because I feel like they get too heavy. I don't like to overthink the work too much. I like to keep it more spontaneous. For example, the piece I just did that I'm just waiting to quilt is uh, a response to, I got so angry when I saw all the food being dumped during, uh, you know, about a month or two ago because uh, of the virus and producers didn't have markets anymore for the food that they were producing or growing. And so rather than finding people who were hungry and needed the food, it just got dumped and it just made me so angry. So I did a piece about coronavirus and uh, I was thinking about the portion in Torah Kadoshim where we leave the corners of our fields for the poor and the hungry. And um, thinking that in this, country where we have so many resources, how we can throw away food and not make it available to those who need it just made me angry. So I had to do a piece of art about it. So that's just the most recent example. Uh, when I did seeing Torah, I wouldn't say it was a problem, but what I wanted to attack was the fact that I had never read Torah start to finish. There were probably a number of Parshiot I had never read or had never heard. Whatever I had read or heard, it's not necessarily in order. So I decided to read Torah start to finish and do some studying about it and do a visual response every week. So that was the genesis of that, literally genesis of that project. And yeah, so I did it. And over the course of one year, I you know I would read the portion, I would do some studying, and then I would do a visual response. And at the end of the year, I had 54 pieces because even the weeks that there were double partiote, I would just do two. So that was the problem I set for myself. And that's how I resolved it. 
or uh, attacked it anyway. How long does it take to make a quilt? Well, that depends on how big the quilt is. The seeing tour ones are small. They're only 11 inches square. And sometimes it took me a couple of hours and t sometimes it would take a whole week because I would do one and throw it out because I hated it and I'd start over. Um, and sometimes ideas came to me right away and it was easy to make something. And sometimes I would sit for a couple of days before I knew how I really wanted to respond to that week's Parsha. And so it took longer. And other quilts, it just depends. Some things go together easily and some things not so easily. And sometimes I have to take things out because they don't look right or redo it or, it's uh, it's a process. It's like any other creative process. What type of equipment do you have? Is it all by hand or? No, I have just a you know regular sewing machine, and sometimes I do a little handwork, but not usually. Actually, since you know since we've been limited in our activities and my world has slowed down a lot, I actually have been embroidering more. It's more of an embellishment type of work. Uh -huh. I'm not really hand piecing, but I am doing some more hand sewing and because just everything's slowed down and that's the slower process. And I thought, well, it's not something I love doing, but I don't, I enjoy it and I find it relaxing. Since we have many long hours where you just don't have much to do, it's a good time to embroider. Right. <laughs> but uh, normally I just work on a conventional sewing machine. Nice. Yeah, working by hand slowly. I'm, I wonder if that kind of allows you to, you know, to focus more on the process rather than the product. It's a combination of both. I actually, when I'm sewing on my machine, even if I'm doing something repetitive or if I'm quilting, um, on the machine, I find it very meditative and I actually enjoy it. It gives me a lot of time to just think. I don't find the hand sewing any more so than some aspects of machine sewing. Aha, interesting. So let's get into the tech. It's a very brief passage, but on 105A, the Talmud does shed a little bit of light on what their looms look like and how they were used. Does the weaving process described here resemble the modern weaving process at all? Yeah, I think weaving is a pretty basic thing. You know, even kids in school will learn how to, you know, do basic weaving. So, yes, I would say that it's pretty accurate. You know, obviously nowadays there are mechanized looms and there was one thing in here that made me think that they had a heddle. You have warp threads, which are the threads that go vertically through your piece and your weft is what you're weaving in and out as going across. And there's something that, that's called a heddle that will separate your alternate warp threads to allow you to put your weft threads through more easily. There was one thing in here that made me feel like maybe there was that technology, but I don't know what Miriam or Kairos translate to. But yes, basically the weaving process, whether you're weaving a, a cloth or a basket, is pretty basic and really hasn't changed. Just the technology has changed to maybe make fancier weaves or whatnot nowadays but i think the rabbis who thought that only two threads could make a weave were not understanding how it works you would need at least three threads to make a weave because two threads you would just be twisting things together mm -hmm. I think. Uh -huh. so i grew up reading this 
picture book of the 39 Malachot. And I always skipped over the, the loom page because I had no idea what was going on. But I do remember that they depicted it having like a, a pedal system. And I'm not sure if, if that's accurate historically. The pedal might have been what I was talking about with the heddle that separates the warp threads so that you can pass the weft threads in and out more easily. Okay. So that's operated by foot. Yes. And depending upon how you uh, lift your warp threads, you can get different kinds of patterns. You could, you could get a twill or a, uh, all sorts of other kinds of patterns other than just a plain weave, which is, you know, one in, one out, one in, one out. Like the pot holders you made back in kindergarten on right. the looms. <laughs> so uh, a few weeks ago, my grandkids were over and we made a loom out of uh, sticks that we found out in our backyard. And I took rope and created a warp. And then I ripped up fabrics into strips for them and tied them together and they wove it on this very rustic loom that I created. Uh, my grandson made a little mat and my granddaughter's still a work in progress. But yeah, it's a pretty basic process. And I think in terms of uh, liability on Shabbat, as soon as you pick up a thread, you're, even though they're talking about actually creating you know, fabric, I think once you pick up that thread, you're probably going to be in trouble. It's like a potato chip. You can't just eat one, you know, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to be doing something with that thread. Right. Wow. That's so cool. The loom you built for your grandchildren. Oh, that must have been such a fun experience for them. Thank you so much for shedding light on to that. I think that de definitely dispelled some of my loom phobia, uh, at least in terms of learning the laws of Shabbat. So before it discusses the details of weaving, the Talmud makes an interesting assertion in the Mishnah that begins the chapter. The Mishnah states that adding a single thread to an existing fabric is as creative of an act as beginning an entirely new fabric. So you kind of alluded to this just now. But do you think this is a technicality of the laws of Shabbat or a bolder statement about artistic change? You can mend. You can add, you know, add a thread to mend. Or you can add a thread to embellish. And I don't think that they're making a distinction between that. Just like with, you know, a, a fabric that can be made into a piece of artwork or fabric that can be made into a piece of clothing, a thread can be used to just mend or a thread can be used to start embroidering. So I guess it's going to be in the hand of the maker and, and it's going to be a matter of intentionality which of course is always concern of the rabbis, especially when it comes to laws of Shabbat. I don't know that they're making a broader statement. They always seem to be wanting to winnow things down to the smallest amount that's going to make something liable in terms of, of Shabbat. Has there ever been a time in your own work where adding few threads or making just a few changes like small changes really change the whole nature of the piece? It's hard to explain, but yes, a small change in a thread can definitely alter the, the ultimate look of a piece. And maybe nobody else would notice it, but I would. Certainly a thread, like just like a pen, can be a utilitarian tool or it can be a, a, a tool for creativity and, and art making. The fact that 13 of the 39 malachot, a full third, 
has to do with the fabric making process gives us an idea of how labor intensive it is. And maybe it might also give us an idea of what Shabbat is supposed to be about. Is there anything about the fabric making process that seems like un-Shabbat-like to you? I would say probably all of it. Even though it um, can be work of the heart, it's still a creative process. And to me, it's a type, it's, it can be a type of prayer depending upon where you are in your creative process. I'm sure the rabbis would not have seen it that way. (laughs) And so um, for me, it's not necessarily a violation of Shabbat if I'm working in a prayerful manner, but I can see where just the act, you're building something, you're making something, and certainly you're making something that was similar to what was made for the tabernacle. And so... I understand why it would be a forbidden act on Shabbat. Um, On the other hand, as I said, because it, to me, it can be prayerful. It's um, also an okay thing (laughs) for Shabbat, but that's me. That's not, I understand that the rabbis would see it differently. So getting back to your own art, when you owned Pomegranate Judaica, you also created mantles for the Sefer Torah? Mostly I did Teletot. Okay. Uh, custom tote, but I did do Torah mantles. I did wimples. All, all of this was commission work. I did, um, there are a number of synagogues in the Albany area where I did wall hangings. Campermat in New England has a parochet that I did. I did pretty much any kind of Judaic fiber art that people wanted. How is the experience of creating those ritual objects different than um, creating your quilt art? The main difference was that, you know, I had to satisfy clients' needs in terms of, you know, imagery or design colors, whatever. It was a different kind of process, but the collaboration with others was always very satisfying. And it felt like holy work. It wasn't just, I think that was one of the things that got me on to doing the seeing tour also, because after I closed up my business and I was just, you know, sort of quilting for myself and making artwork for myself, it was satisfying, but it didn't, I felt like it didn't have a greater purpose the way it did when I was making ritual objects for other people. And I wanted to do something that was more soul satisfying, perhaps. And so that was another reason I thought that the tour project would be something I would enjoy. And in addition to all the other reasons that I mentioned before, I, um, I had done a little bit of that kind of work earlier and and I really loved it. And so I thought this was a, an opportunity to to really delve more deeply and do something that felt more soul satisfying than just making things that were pretty. Well, it's wonderful to hear that you found that art form, holy art form. You mentioned your most recent project, Seeing Torah. As you said, a collection of 54 quilt squares illuminating scenes from scripture which you aptly call a visual midrash. If you had to make a quilt that represented Talmud learning, what would it look like? Wow. My first inclination is to say it would be a very deep well. I had two things flash in my head, and one was a lot of very small boxes, one representing each day of Dafyomi. So <laughs> seven plus years of, yeah. uh, of boxes, and the other would be a deep well. It's so interesting because even with the so you know we talk about the, all the different ways to interpret 
Torah. And then I, uh, I listen to a, a couple of different podcasts where I get emails about Dafyomi and I, I can't read all. But it's so interesting to me how each one pulls out something else from every page of Talmud to focus on. And so it, it's just massive. So I'm, I feel like I'm just dipping my toe into a very, as I said, deep deep ocean or deep well. But I do like the um, sort of the predictability of every morning I go for a walk and listen to a to that day's page of Talmud. And some days are easier than others. Some days are easier to focus than others. Obviously, the ones that pertain to threads are pique my interest a little bit more than, than some of the other ones. What a perfect contrast and perfect way to, to end the idea of Dafyomi being both predictable and unpredictable. You know, predictable in that it's your routine every day, learning another page, but unpredictable. You never know what's going to come up in the page and how it's going to relate to your life and how it's going to make you feel. That's one of the reasons I love learning the Dafyomi. Anita Rabinoff Goldman, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Between episodes, you can keep up with Interleaved on Facebook and Twitter. If you like what you heard, leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. Special thanks to our executive producer, Adina Karp. Come back next time for another deep dive.